Hi everyone and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 10 of the 2018-2019 curling season. This week we welcome Danielle Inglis, whose team just won the World Mixed Curling Championship in Kelowna, and Chelsea Carey, coming off her team's first title of the season at the Canadiens Classic in Portage. We also have two feature interviews this week, as we welcome the godfather of curling podcast, Dean Gemmel, who first launched the Curling Show podcast in 2005, and we also welcome Brian Mudrick, a member of the TSN broadcast crew during the season of Champions, and the new play-by-play man for for TSN's regional coverage of the Montreal Canadiens. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and are a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable Full Houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match a Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Ashton's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Ashton Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Ashton's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.ashim.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of Week 10 of the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit www.curlingzone.com. It was another big week for Canadian curling at the international level with the team of Mike Anderson, Danielle Inglis, Sean Harrison, and Lauren Harrison winning Canada's first ever World Mixed Curling Championship in Kelowna with a 6-2 win over Spain in the final. Danielle Inglis joined From the Hack to discuss her team's victory at the Mixed Worlds, the culmination of a long journey for this team. Danielle, I guess the obvious first question is, now that you've had a day or more to let it sink in, how does it feel to be a world mixed curling champion? My gosh, it feels incredible. It's um, something I dreamed of since I was little. So to be able to have it come to reality, it's it's really just amazing. And we're just so proud of our team and what we've accomplished really this week. And I don't know if it's even fully sunk in yet, to be honest. How important was it for your team to get off at the kind of start you did in the final, not only to settle the nerves a bit, but also to put pressure on the Spanish team and force them to take some chances and get them out of their comfort zone? Yeah, so we, just going into the game, we were uh, we were just feeling it, honestly. The last, especially the last three games um, of the playoffs, we were really just feeling in the zone would be the word for it. And so we um, 
we we really just went out there with the same attitude and we were just when you're just feeling it you're feeling it um we could feel the nerves from the spanish team um even as we were shaking hands you could see they they had a few nerves on their face but uh so we just we just kept going it really just kept doing what we were doing it sounds cliche but that that really was important just to not change anything from what we were doing and um, our team being together for so long, we, we know what it takes to to win um, and to help each other win, especially in those crucial moments. I mean, we've, we've never played a world championship before, but we've lost some big ones before. We've won a couple of big ones, so we, we've been in those types of situations, so we, we knew how to deal with it and how to manage our emotions and each other. I have to ask, your team won the Canadian Nationals last November, I believe. In men's and women's play, the Worlds happened a few weeks after the Scotties and Briars, so the teams typically are still riding the wave of success and confidence when they arrive at Worlds. You guys won Canadian Nationals almost a year ago, like I mentioned, so how did you go about trying to find your groove in the weeks leading up to the Worlds so that you'd arrive in Kelowna in a good headspace and confident in your form? Absolutely. Well, it was something really different because for mixed especially, we played at the end of this season. So it's after we've gone through the men's and the women's. We've been on the ice a ton. We practiced a ton. So we had to kind of fast forward that process. So we, we started, we were playing a summer league in Oakville. Um, so we started that in August. Uh, so we were playing together once a week. So we got gone about seven games together uh, beforehand. Uh, we practiced a few times in Oakville. We are lucky to have the ice. It's only about um, about an hour away from most of us, um, so we were we were lucky enough to do that. But we just tried to do everything to bring ourselves up um, up to speed pretty quick. And uh, really, our men's and women's season, because the season starts so quickly and so fast in September, really you start into competitive vibe already. So that's a that's a good advantage that we had as well. Your team, which also included Mike Anderson at skip, Sean Harrison at second, and Lauren Harrison at lead, has been competing in mix for eight years, I believe, with a few big wins and a few heartbreaking losses along the way. What has allowed you to have the patience to keep the foursome together for such a long period of time when most mixed teams don't typically stick together that long? Yeah, well, really, in, it, we're just friends, and that's that's the biggest thing, is that with this team was put together um, because we wanted to have a good time. <laughs> way back, if you, like a few seasons ago, but and then we realized that we we had something a little bit more than just friendship. We had something special on the ice as well. And really, we do it first and foremost because it's fun, and we enjoy it. We we all enjoy each other, and we enjoy the thrill of competing as well. So that's what that's what really kept our team together all these years, and we'll continue to do so. And finally, Danielle, I have a bigger picture question for you. You work for Curling Canada and have been to numerous national and world championships. I realize that your focus was on the competition and being ready for your own games last week, but how nice was it to see some of the quote-unquote developing curling nations, such as Spain and others like Turkey and Slovenia, do so well at the event and qualify for the playoffs? Oh, for sure. It was, it, it's, it's amazing. It, it was fun for us to play against um, some of those teams and to really get to know them and um, and even sitting down after the games with each of the teams and getting to know what it's like for them in their country because it's a vastly different experience than anything we have in Canada. Um, so it's it's huge for those countries um, in terms of for them. Um, some countries it means more funding. Uh, the, the better they do, um, more notoriety. It's uh, So it's really huge for them. And, I mean, developing curling across the world is so important for the health and the growth of our sport. So it's um, it's 
it's great to see teams like Spain in the final. And so I, I really can't say enough about what we learned, uh, what we learned from other countries. And just, we really enjoyed getting to know everyone. The headline event on the women's tour this weekend was the Canadiens Classic in Portage La Prairie. As always, a top field assembled in Portage, and the final came down to a battle between Team Kerry and Team Anderson, who were looking for their fifth title of the season. Team Kerry won the final by a score of 7-5, and Chelsea Kerry joined from the hack to discuss the win and how her team is progressing early this season. Chelsea, the win at the Canada end certainly had to feel good for you and your team. As we'll discuss in a few moments, you've had to plug some people in and out of the lineup so far this season, and you've also got players adjusting to new roles and new team dynamics. So I'm wondering if the win in Portage put the team a little bit ahead of schedule in your anticipated progression to start this new cycle. You know, I, I actually think we were a little bit behind. We were playing better than the results were showing, so that was frustrating for this. I mean, in a way, yes, but in a way, we felt like we were owed some breaks. We we hadn't really gotten any um, in, in some of our previous spot fields. So, yeah, I mean, yes and no, I would say, but it definitely felt good regardless. There were some uncharacteristic results on the weekend in Portage, with several good teams getting blown out in games, including your team losing fairly handily to Team Nakajima of Japan. I'm not trying to make any excuses for anyone, but word on the street was that the rocks were a little tricky. Was there anything tricky about the conditions in Portage, or was it simply one of those weeks? It was definitely tricky. You had to um, you had to be dialed into the past, into the rocks, into all that kind of stuff. So um, I think the teams that that made the playoffs were the teams that did the best job of managing that, both with their like with calling the game appropriately for the conditions, depending on which draw you were on, and with managing um, some tricky rocks. There was, I, I mean, we even chose for the final a very very straight rock, but we. We knew what to do with it, and it were, had worked for us in a previous game. So, yeah, it definitely was about management um, in out in Portage, for sure. Earlier, I mentioned that your team had to plug uh, people into your lineup so far this season. And on that note, I was wondering if you could provide us with an update on your regular lead, Rochelle Brown, who at last report was expecting to give birth imminently. Uh, yeah, she just she gave birth about a week ago now. So, okay. um, yeah, she hasn't been with us yet, but she's she's back home with her little guy. So... That's exciting, and she'll be back with us. We're hoping for the Canada Cup, but we'll we'll see how it goes. You never know with a with a new mom how it's all going to play out. As a result of Rochelle's absence, you've had to play with a couple of different leads, as I just mentioned so far this season. Has that impacted the rhythm that you would have otherwise liked to set for your team at the start of your first season together? Um, I don't know if it changed how we approached it much, but it's um, you know we've we've had Heather Rogers and she's been great, and then on the weekend we had um, Brianne Knapp fill in for us, and Brianne was was my Manitoba team's fifth for uh, the year of the 2013 Olympic trials and the 2014 Scotties. She also went to the university ad with Sarah, so we were familiar with her. So she fit in pretty seamlessly. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely we're, – we're obviously we're looking forward to having Rochelle back. She's she's our player, and, and, you know, she's so experienced, and she's such a great lead and such a great sweeper and a, and a great person as far as fitting in with our team. But we I think it's actually been good for us in a lot of ways because it forced us to maybe – articulate some of our communication styles and some of our, our sort of, you know, team plans and, and how we do things maybe a little bit more accurately than we otherwise would have because Rochelle and Dana have played together for so long and Sarah was their fifth for years and they're all really good friends. And so having a new, a new person that we all weren't very familiar with in Heather has probably in a way been a good thing because we've, we've had to, yeah, just be that much more precise with exactly what what we mean versus kind of maybe going with the flow with a player that, that those two are still familiar with. 
And finally, Chelsea, in the final in Portage, you defeated a team, Anderson, who've had an excellent start to their season. Does a win over a team like that, uh, that has been playing so well, give you any added confidence heading into the second slam of the season? Or do you park that result immediately and go back to focusing on what you need to do as a team to be successful at the Masters in Toronto this week? I mean, I don't, I, it certainly doesn't hurt. I, I think there was a few good teams in, in Portage that we felt, you know, we, we had to step up uh, to play against them. And and we're able to for the most part, so that was good. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think you you pay a little less attention to the team, but it definitely doesn't hurt to beat a team. I mean, they're the hardest team on tour. I don't think there's any denying that. So, yeah, I mean, that, it, it felt good, but it, um, it, it more felt good to have everything come together for us versus who we played against. In another Western Canada event this past weekend, Team Fesher of Saskatchewan defeated Team Martler of Alberta in the women's final at a Medicine Hat Charity Classic, while Team Appleman of Alberta defeated Team Myers of Saskatchewan in the men's final. Andrea Crawford, who spent a few seasons playing in Europe, is now back in New Brunswick and led her team to victory in the final of the Lady Monctonia in over 2018 Scotty semi-finalist Marianne Arsenault of Nova Scotia. Meanwhile, Scott McDonald and his team from Kingston defeated Charlie Thomas in the final of the Challenge de Curling de Getsno. There was also plenty of curling action overseas last week. There was a Russian double in the China Open, with Team Miranov upsetting Team Gushu in the men's final in China, while Team Kovaleva continued their strong play this season, defeating Team Hegner of Switzerland in the women's final. In Europe, Team De Cruz defeated Team Muirhead in the final of the curling master Champéry, while Team Vrana of Sweden won a women's event in PAF Finland by defeating Team Moshimura of Japan in the final. And finally this week, the daughter-father team of Émilie and Robert Desjardins traveled to Austria and came home with the title at the Austrian Mixed Doubles Cup, defeating Gina Aiken and Scott Andrews of Scotland in the final. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline Curling. For those who play with the ice pad, they know it's the best curling brush. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster, or women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg, and their countrymen Team Adine, or how about the top Canadian teams, Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Carrie Anderson, and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Our next guest this week is the godfather of curling podcasting, Dean Gemmel, who has a long history in curling both in Canada and especially in America, where he represented the U.S. at the World Championships in 2012. Gemmel is also well-known within the curling community as the host of The Curling Show, the first podcast focused on curling that he hosted from 2005 through 2016. Dean, I want to start the interview by speaking with you about uh, curling in the U.S., as I know that you spend a lot of time at curling clinics in different parts of the U.S. I'm just wondering if you could provide some early perspective on the impact that Team Schuster's gold medal win has had on the growth of the sport in the U.S. at the grassroots level. Uh, yeah, sure, Frank, um, and a pleasure to be here. Um, I think the uh, you know the gold medal certainly had a huge impact. I mean, uh, in terms of just the level of interest in the game and, and the fact that uh, you know, it was uh, certainly a, an interesting story, too, during the games in, in that uh, it looked at one point like our, our team was on a was on a trajectory that was entirely different than the, than the gold medal win. But um, so great for those guys. I, I think, though, uh, to be honest, we've had a big we've had a big boost from every Olympics, I think, especially from 2010 on. 2010 was huge. 2014 was was big, too, maybe not quite as big. Uh, and then this, I, I'd say, was you know sort of similar to 2010. But the Olympics themselves have always uh, 
you know, jacked up our numbers down here. Um, the key has always been trying to maintain them, but uh, we do seem to be having enough traction that we get people out to try the game, uh, and large numbers of them are sticking with the game. So, yeah, big big deal for us. Uh, certainly made it easy to talk about curling with people, and for the you know you rarely have to explain the sport to people anymore. Do you believe that Team Schuster's gold medal win is enough to really propel the sport in the U.S., or will it take some sustained success at Worlds and at future Olympics before it really gets a foothold in a very competitive American sports market? Although it has to be said that the sport is getting more coverage in the U.S. than ever before, both on TV and online. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, as much of a, certainly as much of a struggle to get attention anymore. But uh, you know, look, it's it's still a def- definitely a niche sport down here. I mean, we have uh, 23,000 active curlers. So, and certainly the major sports and college sports, and there's a lot of things on the menu down here before you get to curling. So, yeah, I mean, the attention certainly comes and goes. Uh, maybe it's a little more consistent, like you said, with YouTube, uh, Curling Night in America. At least, you know, people turn it on. They're in a bar and they see it. Uh, reminds them. Um, so I, I think we're getting traction and able to keep people interested more. And I, I do think... Uh, the big thing, though, I think the clubs are getting smarter just in uh, how to maintain memberships and how to retain members, uh, and, and that's looking at your club in some different ways, you know, whether it's when you run leagues or what kind of leagues you're running or during the Olympics allowing people to sign up as members uh, when they try the game in February versus, you know, asking them to come back in October. Um, so I think a lot of that shared uh, knowledge is helping clubs attract and then retain members, uh, you know, a different way of looking at, at, at how you operate your club. And we're fortunate that we have some brand-new clubs and brand-new facilities that really, you know, can work with a blank sheet of paper versus a club that's been around since the 1950s. So uh, I think those are exciting things. You know, we have to expect that, understand that the society has changed and, and people approach their leisure activities differently than they did 20, 30 years ago. And, and when you have you know, things that are brand new down here, like new clubs in places like Charlotte, North Carolina, or Raleigh-Durham, or Phoenix, uh, those people can really try some new things, uh, and, and that's exciting to me. Some in the broader curling community are looking towards mixed doubles as the key to the growth of the sport in countries such as the U.S. The challenge, though, in many clubs is to find times in the current schedule at clubs to fit in mixed doubles leagues. How are clubs in the U.S. approaching fitting in the discipline into their schedules, especially with the added interest after the visibility that mixed doubles received during the Olympics? Yeah, I think some of those challenges you point out are valid. I think, you know, uh, certainly people are embracing mixed doubles, uh, and we saw, we're saw we seeing that when, you know, the best players play it, it's, it's a pretty exciting format. But I think at the club level, of course, the challenge is you put on, uh, you know, six sheets of mixed doubles play, and it's half as many people playing, uh, half as many bar sales, uh, you know, half as many of everything. So in terms of utilizing your asset, which is, which is your sheets of curling ice, uh, you know, it is challenging. And I don't know if you can say, well, we're going to, I don't know what business would say, well, we're going to replace 7 to 9 o'clock with uh, half as many people. So I think that's a challenge. I think the, the clubs that will do well with it will find ways to uh, put it into uh, times that are underutilized when the asset isn't being utilized as well as it could be because uh, the demand for maybe traditional curling isn't there. And when you think about the fact that mixed doubles can uh, be a shorter, is certainly a shorter game, people can fit it in in a, shorter time period, uh, that might appeal to some people playing the sport as well. But I think anywhere, you just you have to bring some, some new thinking to it and, and think about how it fits within the way 
uh, people approach their leisure and sporting activities. There were lineup changes on several of the high-performance teams in the U.S. heading into this new cycle, including on Team Sinclair, who had to replace their second Vicky Persinger, despite coming off a breakthrough season that included a Players' Championship title and a fourth-place finish at Worlds. Were you surprised by the number of changes that occurred on the high-performance teams in the U.S. at the end of the cycle, considering all the success that American teams had, especially last season? Well, you know, outside of Tyler George, uh, though I, I don't think any of the players who stepped away or changed teams uh, I don't know if that was a choice they made or if it was a choice made for them. You know, one of the things is we have a high-performance program in this country that operates a certain way, uh, and whether, you know, every decision they make is certainly up for review, and I certainly question some of them, as, as Derek Brown certainly knows. But, uh, you know, their, their approach is to uh, look at the teams at the end of each season and figure out what's, which combinations they uh, think will uh, have the best potential both short-term and long-term. And I, I think that's what they weigh is short-term and long-term results. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a good parlor game down here to question everything they do. So I, I don't discourage it, to be honest. And it, but uh, that's part of the nature of, the, of their job. And they, they have to be accountable for results. And, uh, you know, the gold medal certainly helped them in that aspect. But, uh, yeah, they, they see the shove changing of teams uh, – as something they think is going to produce both short-term and long-term results. You know, look, I played with Heath McCormick for uh, a number of years. He's a good friend of mine. I, I think he's certainly, you know, uh, after John, probably the top skip in our country. And uh, so if there was one thing that, you know, that they didn't find a place for him was maybe surprising for me. But, uh, you know, I also know they wanted to put those four young guys together and see how that developed. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look. Would I do it exactly like they did? No, but uh, but they're in charge and they just want a gold medal, so, so there you go. As a dual citizen of both Canada and the U.S., I thought I'd ask you a Canadian-focused question. Uh, what do you make of the current controversy surrounding the residency rules in Canada? Do you believe they should open it right up, or would you allow two imports per team? What are your thoughts on that? To be honest, um, look, I, I love uh, curling in Canada. I mean I, I, I mean, I love the whole game in Canada. I think... Um, I think sometimes around the world we forget that uh, that the game needs to be strong in Canada if it's going to be strong everywhere else. So we need to keep keep that keep that in mind. Um, and I'm incredibly supportive of, of, of Canadian curling. I think I don't actually envy the situation. If I was Jerry Peckham or if I was uh, on the Curling Canada board, I I wouldn't. Uh, it's not an easy position because they're be- they're trying to balance two things. I mean, they're they're their best franchise. Uh, is, is the Tim Hortons Briar, and yet, uh, in, I think most of us would agree, it's not a collection of the very best teams anymore. So uh, they've tried to juggle that and get more teams into the Briar. Uh, then the residency rule, in some ways, uh, puts Canadian teams at a disadvantage. I mean, you know, here in this country or in any other country, you can play with anyone in the country. Um, so in some ways, it's as if Canada is divvied up into these uh, smaller nations when it comes to putting a team together, and it didn't make a, as big a difference when uh, the game wasn't played on the level it is today. I mean, even compared to five, six years ago, the level of play is extraordinary. So, you know, and and the number of players who play at that level gets is a, is a it becomes a smaller and smaller pool. So, um, I certainly understand why Canadian teams want to be able to assemble the best four players they can. 
Um, at the same time, I don't know how Curling Canada balances the provincial nature of the briar because that is, you know, intrinsic to its success. So, um, yeah, I, I don't have an easy answer on it. Um, I think uh, my feeling is it will sort of slowly evolve and uh, the residency rules will disappear in some way, uh, which will probably be good for, you know, the quality of the teams that Canada sends, although I don't think there's I certainly don't think you have a problem with a, a shortage of good teams. So, but yeah, I think it'll help. You know, not having to be members of the same or residents of the same province would certainly free teams up to form however they want. And in today's competitive sports environment, that would be, I think, the fairest thing. It's just what do you do with the with the Briar? I mean, because it's a it's a great brand. It's a great uh, it's a bit of an antique at this point, and in, in, with the provincial representation, but it's. Uh, it's a great uh, product and uh, and a big media thing. So I don't know how Curling Canada juggles all of that. It's a, it's a challenge for sure. I imagine the way it will go in the end is just completely open. So that's the you know play with who you want to play with. And you yeah. know it seems to me that the, the natural evolution, whether people are like it or not, is that the Canada Cup will become the national championship, and that oh, yeah. that's the that's the event that will send uh, Canadian teams to the World Championship. What do you make of the Curling World Cup? Isn't it simply a case of the rich curling nations only getting richer? Couldn't the World Curling Federation have created an event that allowed more of the developing curling nations with a chance to play against the top nations, even if it produced a few lopsided scores in the first couple of years? I probably share some of your opinion there, in in that I find the World Cup of Curling is uh, a solution in search of a problem, um, to be honest. I, I feel as though... Uh, the World Curling Federation has added a number of invitation-only cash fields to the to the uh, to the schedule. Uh, I'm not crazy about it in that you know the the way to get in it is your country selects you to go versus uh, the Grand Slam series where teams can actually play into it. So you know I, I probably, in my opinion, I probably would have rather seen the World Curling Federation. Uh, do something with the Grand Slams to, to put events outside of Canada. Um, I, I feel like it's not really the role of the World Curling Federation to put these events on. I know why they did it. I know there's some money from, from China available, and there's uh, certainly a, an opportunity to put the game at a high level in some places it usually doesn't get to. Um, but I'm, I'm not a giant fan. I don't know if they're going to generate a lot of interest with them. Um, I know I didn't really watch the first one, so yeah, like like I said, I don't I don't know what it really what what hole it fills in the curling world for us. Uh, you know, we have events like this. It's just it, to me, it's another way for for some top teams to play in a high level event. I, I would have rather seen them work with some of the other parties already doing that in curling to to create some more events or create or or create an event that. Uh, you know, if there's a Grand Slam in China and the World Curling Federation can make it uh, significantly more lucrative with a lot more money, and, and that would that would be exciting. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan so far. So you got into podcasting pretty early before podcasting was much of a thing. Take me back to the start of the curling show in 2005 and what your objectives were when you started interviewing members of the curling community. Sure. I, I'll try to keep this uh, as concise as I can. But in 2005, I, I owned an ad agency in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I wasn't curling. Uh, there was no curling club facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan at the time. There is now. Um, and I hadn't really curled uh, with any intent since 1989 at that point. I'd curl a few spiels every year, maybe. 
Um, so I wasn't curling at any level. Um, and, and I had this ad agency that consumed a lot of my time. And, and my ambition was, when I started it, uh, well, twofold. One, podcasting was brand new. Uh, and we thought it would be something good for our, our ad agency to get its arms around so we could have some expertise when we talked to clients about it or, or created them podcasts for them. Uh, and then I thought, well, the one we could create is the one I still followed curling a lot. And uh, I thought, also thought at the time it was how I would stay involved in the game. I didn't see myself coming back to curling at a high level. So I thought, well, this is a good way for me to do a decent podcast. Uh, I know enough about it. I can converse with these people. I still have enough connections and then stay involved in the sport. So that, that was really the original intent. And, uh, I mean, the first guy I, I got on was uh, Wayne Madaw because uh, I curled junior against Wayne. Uh, and that's a hell of a long time ago, but I curled junior against Wayne in Ontario, so I knew him. Uh, I reached out to him, and then actually right before I interviewed him, the very first podcast interview I did, uh, Joe Franz tested positive for cocaine at the 2005 Briar or whatever, so we had a story, um, and then that's what happened. And I talked to Wayne, and it went pretty well, and uh, once I had Wayne on, then, then other people I reached out to could see that at least I knew what I was talking about, and it was reasonably well produced, and from there I, I was able to get on a bunch of other curlers, most of whom at the time I didn't know. I didn't know John Morris at all when I started the podcast, so it became a great way for me to, to talk to curlers and, and um and connect. So that, that that was really the initial intent. Like you said, it was very early in podcasting. Nobody really even knew what it was. I remember I posted it on Curling Zone and people would say, you know, add comments like, boy, I found this interesting, but they didn't really know what it was about. So yeah, it was it was early in podcasting and certainly early for curling podcasts. Were there some hot curling topics back in 2005 that came up in the interviews that might surprise people some 13 years later? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, certainly first the growth of curling podcasts has mirrored the growth of podcasting in general. I mean, I do stand-up comedy now, and, and uh, every comedian has a podcast and uh, of, of dramatically varying quality. So, yeah, podcasting certainly become a big thing, and, and the WTF podcast, for instance, is a great example of one that, that grew things. But, you know, back in 2005, the, the one of the things I really wanted to do for curling was was at the time we didn't have as many media outlets. Uh, and even though curling was on TV fairly regularly, it certainly wasn't on to the degree it is now. And there wasn't much uh, given uh, in the provided in the way of, of in-depth interviews and discussions with players. We didn't have things, uh, we didn't have YouTube series, we didn't have uh, really sit-down interviews. I mean, I remember back in the back at that time, like if Michael Landsberg on TSN had a couple of curlers on for his show, it was a big deal. I mean, in general, the, the curlers were just out on the ice, and most coverage showed them play and then basically cut away. So I, I wanted to give people some more insight into what the players were really like and start to show some of their personalities and also get some insider discussion on events that wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't see. Like at the time, all the top teams they didn't play only in almost, you know, now you can play almost in only in Grand Slam events, not only, but they were, that was still the era of, you know, barnstorming around and playing all over the place. And, uh, you know, there was Curl TV briefly in there, but a lot of that stuff wasn't covered. So I would talk to them about that and what happened in the, the weekend before in Portage La Prairie because nobody was seeing it. So uh, that certainly helped. And I think back then some of the topics, uh, a lot of them are the same, I guess, in some ways, but, 
Back then, there was a lot of discussion about the influence of the Olympics. There was certainly um, a lot of discussion. When I started, it was relatively fresh from the time when a number of the top teams didn't play in the briar uh, to put pressure on Carolyn Canada to do things like, you know, pay for briar winners, um, something I think, by the way, we should do for the winners of World Championship, which is ridiculous in my mind that they're not paid. Um, but, yeah, so um, a lot of the topics were the same. We, you know, a lot about teams and shuffling and who was playing with who and, and um, you know, what, what happened at an event and who looked good and who was struggling. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if, it, if the issues really changed. I think it's just that now, you know, these days you can find a lot of interviews and content with players that, that maybe didn't exist when I started. And finally, Dean, what were some of the, let's say, more unexpected moments you had during the run of the curling show? Perhaps interviews that took a different slant than you thought might, or or perhaps some individuals who came on the show and uh, discussed some topics you may not have anticipated. Uh, well, a couple of interviews I remember, just so people know, I mean, I basically stopped doing it in 16 um, for, first of all, my site was hacked uh, pretty badly and Rebuilding it was challenging, and, and I'd done about 250-plus interviews at that time, and I was probably losing my enthusiasm for the format. So that's why I ended it. But if I look back over the years, I mean, a couple that stood out, I remember Bob Labonte from, uh, you know, the famous Kick Rock. And, uh, boy, that was a this is a wild conversation, a lot of fun. I remember Eugene Ritzik. I mean, it was always sort of the ones I didn't expect. Eugene Ritzik, after he won the World Seniors, uh, was a great interview. Um, I talked to Jamie Korab the first time Brad Gushu dumped him from his team, and and that was actually one that where my numbers went through the roof. But that was a that was a great conversation because it was pretty raw and emotional, you know. And then I had a number of people on all the time just because they were always thoughtful and I enjoyed talking, like John Mead. I had on probably more than anyone um, because he was always great. Uh, I loved his insights on curling in the game. And, you know, uh, Eddie Wernick. I had Eddie Wernick on. That was great. Uh, you know, I had John Morris on a number of times. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, there were lots that I always thought were great. Uh, I did one interview with uh, Kelly Scott early that uh, she actually requested I not post, and I actually I actually didn't. I honored her request. Uh, and I, I look back on it now, and I, I think I probably should have just put it up because I don't think it was – Nearly, uh, I don't think it was in any way that that bad, really. But she she thought I was maybe a little uh, uh, too critical of. I, I think her on ice demeanor, if I remember. So that that was one that surprised me. I remember, and um, I felt kind of bad about it at the time. But uh, I don't think I think it was actually a pretty good interview. <laughs> Before we move on to our final guest of the week, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. Meanwhile, next week on From the Hack, we will recap the Canadian Beef Masters Grand Slam. Now, on to our final guest this week, who will be quite familiar to everyone that watches TSN's Season of Champions. Brian Mudrick has been a staple of TSN's curling coverage for a decade now, and this year he accepted a new challenge, that of play-by-play man for TSN's regional coverage of the Montreal Canadiens. Brian, first and foremost, congrats on your new assignment as the play-by-play man for TSN's Montreal Canadiens regional coverage. I guess the one question that many curling fans in my audience would have for you is whether or not this new job will allow you to maintain your role in TSN's coverage of the Season of Champions. Yeah, you know what, uh, Frank, you're still stuck with me. So uh, I will still be covering the Briar and the Scotties, um, which is awesome. As uh, you may or may not know, or your listeners, uh, I grew up a, a pretty big curling 
fan slash curler uh, when I grew up in Alberta, and I got to play junior and uh, some Super League in Edmonton uh, before I had to grow up and get a job to pay the bills. Um, and Lord knows I was not going to be good enough uh, as I got spanked early on in junior by the Mark Kennedys and the uh, Carter Rycrofts of the world. Alberta's a tough province, so uh, I think broadcasting was a way better choice for me. I think my schedule also allows me to, I'll be doing the juniors as well, which is back out in Saskatchewan. So I'm actually, I'm really happy. I'm still um, on that. I think it's my 10th year now with the season of champions for TSN, calling the Briar and the Scotty. So for me, it's it's great. Uh, I think the best of both worlds. So I'm excited to uh, still get to partake in that. It means just a long winter, but uh, it'll be great. You haven't been on the podcast in about three years, so I want to start by going back and revisit two events that were among the more memorable curling moments of the last Olympic cycle that you happened to cover with the TSN broadcast team. Let's start with the Briar in St. John's and being on site when Brad Gushu finally won his first Briar and did so in his hometown. You know, I, I think it was special for a lot of reasons. I mean, having uh, I got to interview Jack McDuff, who at the time was um, was a gentleman uh, that a lot of people in Newfoundland Labrador know very well, and in the last team to win a briar. And uh, it was great to get to meet him and to interview him. And if you'll remember that week, I mean, Gushu's team, they, they got off to a bad start. And whether you could, you know, argue nerves or over-excitement or whatever it may be, and I think at one point even Brad uh, shared with the media, they kind of had a, kind of a little meeting slash talk and said, boys, let's, let's settle down and enjoy this. This is fun. This is supposed to be fun. Let's enjoy this moment. And, uh, you know, there was obviously a turning point there somewhere, and they and they really took off. You know, the, the building was so loud, and I just remember how cool it was, whether it was a morning draw, which I call with Kathy, or whether it was, you know, the main draw. It was always busy and loud and exciting and um I don't know how many times people just wanted to stop and, and just to chat and just great people out east that love their curling, love their team Gushu. And then obviously I also remember the, the hurricane winds that were blowing through. I mean, you, you know, knocked the roof off the building literally. Uh, I remember I had to go inside uh, for, 40, uh, for about, I don't know, half an hour because CTV National wanted me to, like, someone to do a story. And apparently I was the only affiliated person on the island that could do it. Not island, sorry, but, you know, that, that part of the world on the rock, right? So here I was stepping outside <laughs> to do this hurricane thing for CTV National and then just remembering that final uh, and, and just the crowd and how they rallied behind Brad that whole week. And you remember he had the hip uh, issue and, and his health and how he was getting physio. So, I mean, you know what? To, to have that event there and then and then I'll never forget, I mean, the Briar tanker getting in the, the mosh pit afterwards and the whole, they're playing, the you know, the Islanders song and their and, and, and the trophies getting passed around the crowd like it's a rock star. It was really cool. I mean, I mean, you know, that that's definitely a briar that will that I don't think a lot of people will ever forget. It was a lot of fun. Now, aside from perhaps that arena in St. John's on the day of the Briar final, have you ever been in a curling venue where there seemed to be as much tension as there was in the Canadian Tire Centre in Ottawa, basically from the first draw onwards during the Olympic trials last season? I just think that it's it's what's at stake, and it's every four years, and it's different. Um, I mean, it felt that way to me uh, even in Edmonton at the trials and then at Winnipeg at the trials. I guess how I would just describe it, um, you know, the curlers are always some of the best athletes uh, for their time, and and just and, and by that I just mean willing to chat and tell some cool stories and open up and give us some colorful things to share with our listeners and our viewers on TSN. But you can just tell there's a little more, I don't know if tension's the word, but um, it's just different, a little more business-like. It's a little more 
focused. It's a little more whereas the briar and the Scotties, you know, you got the patch and the hard stop lounge and, you know, there's the pints getting, you know, and it's a party atmosphere. It's different. And especially getting towards that final weekend, it's different because I think everyone realizes what's at stake. And, and to me, I mean, there's always going to be great curling moments. And you mentioned, you know, the Briar and St. John's. As for a moment, that was a great moment and, and a nice story for Brad to win his first at home. But that final on the men's side is arguably one of the best games I've ever seen. I mean, McEwen and Cooey, I mean, that was an amazing game. I mean, full value entertainment shots down to the last straw. I mean, it was phenomenal. And, and, and when I think of the women's game, I, I think to a Scotty's that stands out to me, I meant to mention this earlier, but is, is the one with Holman had to battle back and Michelle Englott, man, did she have a run? And the, the, the shot up to, to Holman's dad, like, oh, my God, she makes that shot at 10 to force 11. Like, that was one of the greatest, like, like we've been treated to some amazing games in the last few years that really stand out to me of, because sometimes, you know, a Briar Scott is kind of a blowout and it's anticlimactic, but we've had some real barn burners the last few years, which has been a real a treat to be a part of them. One subject that received a lot of attention after the Olympics was whether or not there was anything wrong with Canadian curling. And my perspective on it is that the athletes themselves answered that question with Team Jones winning the Women's Worlds, Team Gushu leading his team to the final of the Men's Worlds, Canada winning both the Men's and Women's Junior Worlds, and the success of Team Cooey and Team Holman, along with the mixed doubles team of Kirk Myers and Laura Walker at the inaugural Curling World Cup event earlier this season in China. Now, as a curling observer, I'm sure you've heard that question a lot. What's been your take on it? Number one, there is absolutely nothing wrong with our athletes, our country, our teams, zero. Number two, if you look at, for example, I'll just bring up the, you know, Schuster's team, and there's no disrespect to his team. They, they had the week of their lives. I mean, those guys all, like, peaked and just had a brilliant week that will never be matched by their team. And, I mean, I haven't, I've heard a few of their interviews, but, I mean, I'm sure they admit the same thing. They just had it all going at the exact time they needed to have it all going. I'll say this, and I, you know, I don't give my opinion on this too much because it's not for me to really, really debate. But I guess as a curling fan, I can have an opinion. And, and I'll just say this: I think for our athletes, we have to try find a way to make it easier on them. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether you move the trials and and, and bounce some ideas around and have them April, the year before the actual Olympics, so to give them time to, you know, peak again. I mean, there's so much buildup. You win. You win the Canadian curling trials to go represent your country, and it's like you feel like you've won an Olympic gold medal because it's so hard. It's such a hard thing. You've been gearing up for three years to that four-year cycle to qualify, right? And then you're asked in a couple months later or less to peak again. And then you've got the media, and you've got all this stuff, and then your family there. So whether it's you've got to get a bunch of smart people in a room, maybe a, a couple former Olympians, current ones, you get people from Curling Canada. You get you get high performance specialists. Have a summit. Figure it out. You know, give our athletes the best chance to shine. But there's nothing wrong. I, I will always I would stand behind you know Holman and Cooley's team and and you know good for them and and you know they did us all proud. And hey, listen, Johnny Moe and uh, Caitlin Laws bringing home gold for us in mixed doubles. That's awesome. So nothing wrong. Last season when all the new lineups for the 2022 Olympic cycle were being created, you became somewhat of Curling's version of the TSN insider like Bob McKenzie and Darren Dreger are in hockey when you broke news on several of the new lineups via Twitter. Did any of those new lineups really surprise you? 
You know, not not really. And it's just because that's just the way the game is now with the Olympic cycles, right? I mean, uh, the one that's interesting, you know, I mean, good for, you know, uh, Anderson's team. I mean, you're, you're throwing together a bunch of skips there, and boy, they've done well. You know, I mean, that, sometimes you wonder, like, how that will shuffle out, because if, if you've been, and it's not because of the per- personalities, of course, but I mean, if you've been a skip for most of your life or in junior, and you come up and all of a sudden you're being asked to play second, you know, it's a little bit different. So you want, it's, it's not that they can't throw the rock. It's not like if you're a skip, you can't throw a, you know, a draw, or if you're not, if you're a lead, you can't, you know what I mean? Like, they, they got all the tools. It's how a team comes together. Um, you know, to me, I just think, and I don't know whether it's a give him credit or a tip of the hat to him, but like a guy like Kevin Cooley, for example, he was the first guy you remember wins the Briar and has a chance to go as Team Canada, right? That was, I believe, in Calgary where Pat Simmons and Johnny Moe did the switch, and he just decides to no, I'm going to step away. I need a new team. I want to, I want to make a change. Like you know what? And then you know it didn't work out for them, obviously, in, at the Olympics in Pyeongchang. And so now, what does he do? He makes another change. And so, you know, you got to give a guy like that credit, you know, because it's not like it wasn't working. The guy just went to the Olympics with that team. And who's to say they couldn't try it again? So I'm not really surprised anymore because these curlers, they see each other all the time. They're at the slams. You know, it's, it's, it's a small knit community. Everyone sort of knows what's going on. So um, the one I'm looking forward to continue to watch is, you know, Buddy, Reed Brothers, and Mike McEwen. And uh, that, that dynamic there, uh, two great players in their own rights, and now his friends coming together to play. So uh, the, the storylines are really intriguing. Uh, I think the one that maybe surprised people was kind of the Colton Flash coming out of nowhere to be, to be um, joining the Cooey team. But uh, Ben Hebert was raving about him and, and what they went and won that, uh, that, that inaugural World Cup event there over, over in uh, China. So uh, seems to be working for them early as well. So, yeah. Nothing really surprises me. I mean, I'm just getting old, but nothing really surprises me anymore. I want to move on now to your new gig at TSN for a couple of minutes. So what was the process like that led you to being selected to be the new play-by-play man for TSN's regional coverage of the Montreal Canadiens? Was there an audition process, or did you simply get a call one day telling you that you'd been selected to fill the play-by-play role? started with the speedo modeling, actually. You know, that was uh, my class. I'm just, I'm just bugging you. No, it was, honestly, Frank, a lot of hard work. Uh, people ask me that, and it's, it's a ton of work. It's a ton of prep. It's a ton of putting yourself in a position to be there. And, and uh, I had done with the Olympics in Pyeongchang. I filled in because both Gord Miller and um, Chris Cuthbert had gone over for one for NBC and one for uh, the CBC consortium to call. So there was a backfill uh, opportunity for me. Uh, before then, I called the U18 Worlds and the Men's Hockey Worlds been to, you know, Prague, Czech Republic, and Switzerland, and Slovakia, uh, to uh, a lot of cool cities in Europe to call international hockey, a lot of Hockey Canada events, and then getting that NHL experience last year was great. And I tell people all the time, uh, it's, it's way easier to call an NHL game, and I mean easy in the sense that you have all the information. You know the lines, you know the players, you know where they've been drafted, you have the stats. It's on you if, if you don't know your stuff, because it is all available. But you go to research a U18 team, uh, and you're trying to get out some information on, you know, the Latvians, good luck, right? You've really got to even do your homework double as hard as you would where you have all this stuff available um, with the NHL guys. So, yeah, it just so happened. I mean, I've been working towards it, uh, something I, I was very keen on doing. And uh, very, uh, very um, – and I, I call – I say it all the time. It's, it's an honor, and it's a privilege to call NHL hockey games. It really is. It's fraternity. I mean, I, I caught myself, you know, like – 
you mentioned that Briar in St. John's, well, I got to interview the great Bob Cole because he played in a Briar. Obviously, he's from that area and, and, and loves his Brad Gushu and he loves his curling. Well, you know, it, it's not lost on me that this is his 50th year and he's calling Habs games and I'm watching him call a game and that's what I get to do now. It, it's, it's pretty cool. So uh, it's something that I take a lot of pride in. Uh, my family and I are very proud of, it, of, of the uh, opportunity I've been given. And uh, I'm busting my ass to, to do my best job and to be entertaining and, and to be knowledgeable and to give the Habs fans uh, uh, a lot of passion. It doesn't matter if they're down 4 nothing or up 5-1, to one, just to bring it every night. So I've been uh, really uh, enjoying it. There are several uh, legendary play-by-play men that have called Habs games both in English and in French. Do you feel any additional pressure having to follow in the footsteps of people like Danny Gallivan, René Le Cavalier, Bob Cole, and others, even if it's for a different network? You know, not not really. You know, you know what you know what pressure is is um, you know putting food on the table for your family. You're battling cancer twice. You know that's pressure. This this is a dream come true, and it's just been a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong; it, it's an honor to you know to be in that. I guess you call it a fraternity and and those names. But all I got to do is be Brian, and that's my job is to be myself and not try to be you know a Danny Gallivan or a Bob Cole or a Chris Cuthbert or. Uh, Gordon Miller, right? It's just to be myself, and 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 that comes with doing a lot of hard work, making sure I'm prepared. Because as you know, as you said, you're a Habs fan. They'll smell my BS a mile away if I don't know what I'm talking about, uh, or if I don't know that Guy Lafleur is the all-time points leader, or that you know Rocket Richard has the most goals, uh, or you know the the captain and the 30th is now Shea Weber from British Columbia, and and on and on. So if, you know if you don't know your stuff. Um, they're gonna, they're gonna know. So I, I take a lot of pride in it. I, I look at it as a challenge, and uh, I love that pressure stuff, man. I live for that stuff. That's why I'm doing it. I realize that one of the main qualities of a good play-by-play person is to be able to adapt to the pace of the different sports you cover. What's the bigger challenge in your case? Having to fill some of the slower moments during a curling game, or having to keep up with the end-to-end action of a hockey game? It might sound silly to you, but the hardest challenge of the hockey play-by-play is is seeing the numbers, like. These new buildings, you might as well be on the moon calling a hockey game. Like, literally. Like, I'm so lucky the Bell Center, and if you talk to any play-by-play guy, they'll tell you the same thing. The Bell Center in Montreal is the best vantage point. It's like a cathedral. You're straight up. You're looking straight down. Uh, You're not that high up, and and it's just like, oh, it's just a treat to call a game there. And plus, the building's insane. I did a preseason game, so in Quebec City, um, and I've heard, I haven't called a game in Edmonton yet with the new building, but like Pittsburgh, PPG Paint, same thing. Um, that Videotron uh, Center that they built to hope to get NHL back, you're so high up, and not only you're high up, but you're back. Like you're, you're, you're sort of back from the ice, so it's just really hard to see the numbers sometimes. And, you know, when it's going that fast, I remember I got ripped on my first few games with Ottawa, and I mean, it's, you listen, I'm a rookie and it's throwing pains, but like, Eric Carlson, right, 65, right shot. Mike Hoffman is 68, left shot. But, like, they both skate like the wind. They both have the hair flowing. So if, if you're in a building and it's he's coming out of a corner and maybe you just, you know, and I think I miss ID Carlson for Hoffman once. Oh, did I get lit up. Like, <laughs> just, just lit up on Twitter, right? People, they're really tough to jump on you and stuff like that. But, I mean, that's what has to make you do the job. And for curling, I think the thing is, is, is like, I mean, the curlers are your best source of broadcasting. You know, it's, it's knowing when to lay out, let them talk their strategy, provide some fun, some fun stories and some commentary. The one thing that, that I always get, like, I just, people don't get. So the hardcore curling fan, they're going to watch every game, right? But if I got a great story about 
you know, whoever, um, Jennifer Jones, or and, and, and I tell Jen the story, whether it's about maybe a family story or a cool thing that she did at the charity event, let's say. And I tell that story. Well, let's say two games later, I may tell that story again. And then they'll be like, oh, do some research. You're telling the same story all over again. I'm like, well, I can't assume that every viewer has tuned in for that. Maybe there's a new viewer that's watching. Maybe there's someone watching Curling for the first time that would like that story. So, yeah, over a course of two weeks calling a million games, you have to, you know, sort of reincorporate these stories because you can't assume that uh, everyone has heard that story. Yet the diehards would be like, oh, God, he's told it three times this week. Well, if you're a diehard, I hope you forgive me. A bit earlier, you referred to how curlers are typically pretty open to the media at events such as the Briar and the Scotties. How do hockey players and coaches compare to that? Do you have a similar level of access uh, with the hockey players and coaches? Or are they more enveloped in a bubble, if you will, than the curlers are? No, you know what? I think they're pretty good. I mean, a lot of the times uh, you're getting them either after a game or, for me, my job is a little bit different where... I'm lucky enough I'll have a little one-on-one time with coach to maybe talk about lines or a young player he likes or a veteran player who's been scratched or whatever. And then I usually, you know, you got a player or two that maybe, like a Thomas Tatar, for example, you know what, he came over in the Pacioretty trade and he was really a healthy scratch for a lot of the time in Vegas. And now, you know, a guy comes in, talented, he's a 20-goal scorer a number of times. So he's a guy you could focus and have a chat with, and, and you know, a lot of the times they're really great. I, it's, it's very rare, you know, where, where I, I'd have to say, like, oh, yeah, I didn't, you know, this guy said no or whatever. I mean, they're pretty good. I, I, I'd have to say that most, most of the time they're pretty good. And finally, Brian, as a fourth-generation Habs fan, I can't let you go without asking you a Habs-related question. I've been pleasantly surprised by the way the team has started this season. Do you think they have what it takes to continue surprising people, or is it more likely that they will fall back to where many thought they would finish when the wear and tear of the NHL season starts to creep in and it gets more difficult to produce the same energy level for each of the games they play, especially in stretches where they have to play three games in four nights or, or four games in six nights? Uh, I think the answer is yes, as long as they continue to work really hard. You can't, you need that work ethic. And as soon as you, you know, for example, you can't be like, like the Maple Leafs, they can bring their 6 out of 10 game and probably win 90% of the games because they have that much talent. The Habs are talented in pockets. They can't afford to take nights off on the effort level. And so far it really looks like Clojulian, they've bought into him. They bought into the system. They're fast. It's an exciting brand of hockey. Listen, if you look at the stats, Carey Price can't get any worse from last year. Uh, he's come in. He looks a lot trimmer. He looks like he's in a little bit better goalie shape, per se. You know, Shea Weber is uh, hopefully going to be back early December. Uh, the young kids on the back end have stepped up. You know what? Domi seems to have been a nice fit with Jonathan Drouin. So, and Yusperi Kakaniemi, the third overall pick, seems to have settled in nicely. He's a smart kid. He's been... He's been taking, um, I think, too many penalties with a stick uh, early on if there's one knock on him. But he's certainly poised and and, um, been playing really, really well. So, I mean, will they make the playoffs? Uh, The Atlantic is so tough, right? Oh, my goodness. Like, uh, you know, you just look at Boston and and Toronto and how they're they're built, and they have arguably the top two lines in hockey. So it'll be tough to – but, I mean, if they can sniff around a wild card spot, stay relevant, sort of be in that conversation – I think it's uh, I think it's fantastic, uh, and it's great for the city. That is a fun city to be in when that team's doing well. So yeah, I like the work ethic. Uh, I think you know Gallagher can take even another step. Boy, he's fun to watch. He plays so hard. 
uh, for him and his teammates. You have the two young guys in, in Mete and uh, Juleson. Uh, one's the first rounder, one's the fourth rounder. Mete the fourth rounder, and you know they were paired together for quite a bit of the preseason. Um, you know Mike Riley's a super fast player, good on the back end, and they paid all that money to Carl Alsner, and he finally got to play a game. He's been a healthy scratch, so um, there you go. I mean, they, there's a lot of cool, interesting components there to that team, and like I said, if Price can just have a the year he had that year when he won the Hearts and the Vezina or something close to that, hey, why can't they make the playoffs? And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for week 10 of the 2018-2019 season. A big thank you to all of our guests and to you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.